This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And there's lots of things going on at Zupan's. Uh, great deals in the offing. Um, prime ribeye steaks are, you can save $5 a pound right now. Yellow nectarines now in season, save a dollar per uh, dollar a pound, two ninety nine, and also one of the things I was very pleased to see was they're carrying the wild W Y L D products now. So I got I haven't tried them yet. They're in my refrigerator. A couple of sparkling CBD drinks. There's two for six dollars, so you'll save a dollar twenty five each. And then they also carry the wild gummies at Zupans now. So if you if you got some aches and pains. Now you go to Zupans and you buy your your CBD right there. So uh, I was glad to see that. The other thing that I was glad to hear about was I have a friend who was visiting in Portland this week, and she asked me for dinner ideas. And I said, well, I think if you went to Zupans and did some of those um, take some of the take home items. Um, you'd be pretty happy. And she said it was better than most everything that she's been trying in Portland over the last few weeks. Yeah, their so. uh, meals ready to heat are, are, are really great. We've been talking about those pretty much since the uh, the pandemic set in and people are trying to figure out how to have meals that they weren't cooking themselves. And right. uh, Zupan certainly stepped up for that. Uh, one thing you can also do this summer is it's, uh, it's back, Burgers in the Breezeway. At Lake Oswego, every Thursday through the summer, you can enjoy gourmet burgers as well as great toppings and French fries. And every single week, there is a rotating specialty burger that you can go and get. Now, keep in mind, all of these orders are to go. They're not doing the on-site seating so that uh, uh, we can you know, all enjoy that social distancing. But uh, you can get there, you know, order, get your food, get out of there, and uh, enjoy delicious, delicious burgers from Zupan's. You all have nice cars now. Sit in the parking lot and enjoy a burger. Yeah, listening, listening to music. So this is this is the new normal. Mm-hmm. So, so Zupan's three locations: uh, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. And where else, Court? Zupans.com. It is time once again, Portland's Food Scene Podcast, right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. And you you say that as though it sounds like that's you, but no, that's me with this voice. Yes. On the other end, and we haven't seen each other for three months now, which is kind of strange. Has it been that long? It has been that long. It's been at least that long. Yeah. It's been more than that. Yep. So, and you're Court Johnson, the guy I haven't seen, so over there, but you can still be found on kink.fm, so people can hear your voice. That's right. And all, all that good stuff, so, um, and I'm glad, you know, we've had an interesting time doing the podcast over the last three months, remotely learning some, um, what presents technical problems and what generally doesn't. And also, you know, we did uh, a few months of COVID updates and what restaurateurs and people in the food world were doing in response to uh, the pandemic. And um, we've kind of hit a point where 
continuing to talk about that is not news, really. Everybody right. kind of knows what's going on. And then to go back to our regular interviews is probably what we need to do. But for the time being, we think we have some archived episodes that not everybody may have heard or have not heard it in certain contextual um, ways. Right. Can you come up with a better word for that? Certain contexts would be better. Oh, but, no, so no. This- I'm, I'm loving certain contextual ways. In fact, when I, when I become a <laughs> rock star and I have an album, that's going to be the name of my first album, Certain Contextual Ways. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And when you're when you become president, you can use that continually. And whatever you say, you'll have you'll be more articulate than what we have now. Sure. So you, can, you can say anything. So um, anyway, so uh, which brings us to this episode. And we interviewed during our uh, right at the moment series back in, I think this was in April or May, we talked to Nick Zukin of Me Maramole, and before that, Zappa Pizza. Mm-hmm. And uh, he discussed with us the closing of Zappa Pizza. It was actually a pretty long interview. And uh, then what, was, what his thoughts were for what the government should be doing during the pandemic to help them keep open, what some of, our challenge, what some of his challenges were. And so some of those worst case scenarios for him came to pass and he on July 3rd closed down one of one of Portland's truly best restaurants and best values. Yep. Me Maramole uh, July 3rd. So Nick Zukin, uh, who's been in the restaurant business ever since I've moved to Portland, starting with Kenny and Zooks, um, or even I guess a little after that. Uh, is now out of the restaurant business. He was talking about doing salsa delivery yesterday. Right, Facebook. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> and I asked him, he, he, he was proposing $10 of, for a weekly subscription. He'd deliver a different salsa to your house. And I, the kind of guy I am, I, off, I chimed in with asking him if he would do it for ten twenty five to deliver out here to Manzanita. Ah, so, yeah, that's gonna. Get, I'm willing to give an extra quarter for the uh, 200 mile round trip. Though. Sure. So um, anyway, Nick Zukin again. He was uh, one of our. He was our second guest on the podcast back in 2014. That's right. He then came to join us for our discussion. Ironically enough, on um, cultural appropriation. Yes, cultural appropriation. That's what it was. And then again, during the pandemic. So um, get, we were bringing that episode back from a couple of months ago because we assume not everybody got a chance to hear it. If you did, it's interesting to listen to in the context that now he's closed his restaurants. So uh, enjoy this discussion with Nick. Zucan. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets, inspiring you with the best in food and wine. Local, family-owned Zupan's Markets provides a unique grocery shopping experience for Portland food lovers. Excellent products sourced locally and from around the globe with delicious chef-prepared meals for your convenience on West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Visit Zupan's.com and sign up for your exclusive deals and promotional offers. So it's a high likelihood if you're listening to this podcast that you surely want to save our independent restaurants that make Portland a special place, and we hope they get back to um, the business of uh, hospitality soon. 
So now is the time to get loud and turn up the pressure. Um, there are three quick and easy actions you can take this week to help save restaurants. One is to use that hashtag, hashtag save restaurants. And we want you to email your representatives asking them to co-sponsor the Restaurants Act. Spread the word about saverestaurants.com, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, and also donate to the Independent Restaurants Coalition if you're able. And of course, as I just said, you'll find them at saverestaurants.com. So uh, get into the fight and help our friends in the industry get the relief they need to survive this crisis. It's not over. But uh, the IRC is helping them get closer and closer each day. So go to saverestaurants.com and uh, email your representatives, spread the word, and donate to the IRC. You know that there are apps that you can download for your phone that record the entire conversation. Yeah, and if you know of a good one, that would be great. Because every one that I tried cut off in the middle of it. And I oh, just, are you serious? Yeah, and, and I just didn't want to have like a conversation uh, with you for f- whatever, however much time it is, and then call you and say, "Hey, that didn't work." So this we know okay. works. So yeah, the only problem I've had with them is uh, sometimes I'm not recording the other person. They'll like record me totally fine, and then there's just blank for the other person. But... Yeah, well, that's my point. <laughs> so we didn't want to. Yeah. We, and court found one, and we tried it, and it worked, and then it didn't. So we just thought, we're not doing this forever. This is going to be, I don't know, for how long, until our normal interviews just don't seem as weird to run. So um, Okay. Well, I'm going to do you a favor, then. I just uh, hit record on my phone, and so at least I know that this app does not work on their, my current uh, Android update, so, uh, but it will record my voice. It just won't record your voice. So Okay, well, I can uh, send... That might help you. Yeah, I can send Court both files, and if he can overlay them, great. If not, he'll just use this one. So okay. He, you know, he's, his time is limited right now, too. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's operating uh, kink.fm out of his home. So, um, oh, is he really? Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, not the whole station, but his shifts and some other things, and his job is safe. That's good. So, yeah, at this point, that's nice. People are still listening to the radio, just not buying commercials on it. Yeah, that's got to be rough. They let a lot of people go, as I understand it, or at least furloughed them. So, um, much like what you've had to deal with. So, um, so Nick, let's talk a little bit. about you've had you've had a, about the roughest year I can imagine because <laughs> <laughs> right so if if Zappa Pizza wasn't enough for you then this you know if so, if someone would have told you months ago that oh don't worry this is going to probably be the it, I don't know if it's I one one could say it'd be the easy thing but don't worry there's more coming down the pike what would you have thought. Yeah, well, I mean, I've told the story to enough people now. It's probably not a big deal for me to tell it uh, publicly, but about uh, two years ago, I went to my wife and I was like, hey, look, you know, we've got lots of equity in our house. You know, we're probably at peak market in Portland for housing prices. You know, you've got a a modest 401k. Um, I've got the restaurant 
and a little bit of money saved up that I was thinking of using for a new project. But, you know, we could just uh, uh, sell the restaurant, move to Mexico and, you know, be semi-retired. And she was like, uh, I think I still want to stay in Portland, you know, maybe, you know, in a couple of years, that sort of thing. And so I was like, okay. And so I, um, <laughs> I didn't know I, this story. This is, yeah. So that's when I kind of sat down or, uh, or put myself on the road of Zappa Pizza. And so I had most of the money, um, saved up to do that. You know, I, since, uh, Mimera Moli opened, I've only paid myself $20,000 a year. Um, the rest has either gone into, you know, improvements for the restaurant. You know, originally I built out the second restaurant, mostly on, uh, savings. Um, and then, you know, I've tried to stay ahead of, uh, uh, market rate, you know, been able to pay my employees, um, you know, more than uh, they would get elsewhere, um, you know, things like that. And so I've been putting mostly into the restaurant and just taking what was necessary for me to be able to pay our mortgage at home and, you know, our bills and whatever. Um, well, 20000 yeah. doesn't go very far, though. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I mean, um, you know, I do other things, obviously, like, you know, uh, you know, you, you use your gas card or whatever, but, you know, um, but basically that's what I've been paying myself every year. Um, you know, just putting it all back into the business and, you know, with the idea of, you know, well, one day I'll have this asset or I can, you know, uh, you know, I will build up this thing that can pay for itself and I can just, you know, uh, sit back and not have to work so hard or, or sell it to the, um, employees or something like that, you know? Um, and, and, you know, and I had always had these ideas about maybe doing another business, but, um, I was ready to be done. I was ready to go to Mexico and work on my book. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. And instead I ended up, uh, you know, taking that money that was in the bank and putting it towards, uh, Zappa pizza. And then, um, you know, I ended up taking out a loan on my house too because uh, I decided I wanted to, you know, make the interior a little bit nicer and and spend some money on this and that, and uh, and not to mention the um, uh, contractor went like nine months over, and you know there was a whole bunch of work, extra work that had to be done with like asbestos, and so I ended up spending like at least three hundred thousand dollars on the build out, and then you know. Uh, we basically lost another hundred thousand dollars while we were open. So I ended up losing on Zappa pizza, $400,000. And I mean, you know, that, uh, that was, you know, hard for me to take. And it was, you know, it took me a little while to kind of become resigned to that. Um, Hey, a lot of people, a lot of people, when they lose $400, it's very hard for them to take. So that's a, that's a big hit. Nick and uh, I didn't realize well, it was that yeah. big. I didn't realize it was that big. Well, and the difference is that you know, for me, it felt like I was, uh, you know, trying to do things right. You know, you save up money, you don't take out loans. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't putting anybody else at risk. You know, with Kenny and Zooks, I always felt bad um, for the other investors. You know, all these investors that were in there when we weren't making money. I didn't want to be in that position again where um, I felt like, you know, someone else's uh, nest egg was uh, on me. 
and and so I've never taken investors for Mimaramoli really. I had a, I had a small investor once, and I paid him back plus interest. You know, when I opened up the new one, but um, but basically I did it myself. You know, I didn't want to be in that position again. And um, and you know, you feel like you're doing it right. You know, a lot of restaurants what they do is they. You know, most restaurant investors are, you know, some sort of angel investor or just someone who does it because they've got, you know, some extra cash and they want to feel like, you know, it's cool to own a restaurant and that sort of thing. I mean, I don't really know those type of people, but I mean, that's what most of these, you know, upscale restaurants are. They're not real investments. I mean, most people would be better off putting their money into something else. They want to be a part of the restaurant scene. They want to go to the restaurant with their friends and, you know, brag about it or or, you know, whatever, or they just love the food and it's kind of a um, way for them to uh, be a patron, you know, in the same way that you might be for some painter in the 16th century. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I've never really done that sort of thing, and uh, at least since Kenny and Zooks, and I, I didn't, I don't like the feeling of it. I don't like having, you know, I would never let my friends invest in anything I do. I don't want to, you know, get, have that get in between me and them. Um, you know, have this, you know, have this money that would, uh, get between our friendship or have to worry that I would have to tell them one day, sorry, I lost all your money. You know, if I'm going to lose the money, it's going to be my own money. You know, I, I'm making these, uh, decisions. I want the risk to be my risk, not someone else's risk. But, you know, most restaurants don't run that way. They put a lot, they take out loans and they get a lot of investors, um, who have cash, but, um, you know, smaller restaurants are more like me where it's, you know, it's, it's basically your nest egg and it's, it's your, it's, it's the money that you have. It's your life savings. And that's basically what this was, was me slowly building up money. And I put that into Zappa pizza, hoping that I could build something that could turn into, you know, three or four Zappa pizzas and be, you know, that, um, that thing that allows me to retire. Um, cause you know, most restaurants, it's hard to ever retire. Right. Um, I've been lucky that my wife has had a steady, um, corporate job for a long time. And so that pays our bills and allows me to be a little riskier. But you know, a lot of people aren't in that uh, position. Um, yeah, but anyways, that's a lot of risk though. The 400,000, did you think that that was what, when you went into it, what were the odds that you thought that wasn't going to work out? Uh, I thought the odds were really low that I would fail, fail. Um, I thought, you know, it's always kind of 50-50 whether you'll take off. But I thought, I looked at um, the numbers we did for Miramole. I mean, even when we first opened, like $1,500 was a minimum day for us. And so I ran the numbers on Zappa Pizza. And even though the uh, the rent was significantly higher than it was at Miramole, I felt like, um, we could break even if even if we did only fifteen hundred dollars a day, um, and we'd probably do a little bit more than that. I thought that was like as low as we could go because that's you know was a Mimaramole Monday um, in October or, or January sort of day, even when it first opened. And I, and I thought the location was a little better, at least uh, more visible straight across the street from. Um, Big pink. So I thought I thought that was kind of the bare minimum. We might kind of lose money. We might break even eventually, but I didn't think we'd be losing, you know, twenty thousand dollars a month, which is where we were. Um, so uh, 
um, I didn't, I didn't really think what happened was a, was a possibility, but, um, obviously that was, you know, my mistake and I've tried to own up to the, you know, the mistakes I've made on Zappa pizza and the errors and judgment that I had, um, you know, which were a lot and it cost me a decent amount and it cost, you know, my employees, uh, uh, their jobs and what opportunity. Kind, what kind of research had you done on that concept? Because it was very different. And, you know, people, I thought it was fantastic, but it was not uh, something that people were necessarily, they weren't really familiar with it. And so I think. Yeah, and I think that was part of it. Um, you know, I think, um, I think that was part of it in the sense that, um, you know, we definitely had people who like, uh, you know, you know, we're friends with the people over at Society Hotel, and they'd recommend us all the time. They liked the food; they'd come in all the time and eat it. And they would, and when their customers would hear about, they go, mm, "Mexican pizza, yeah, no." And a lot of times, when they would come over, they'd go back. They go, "Oh man, that was the best ever! I didn't expect it to be so good." Um, and so there was definitely that. But I think a lot of it was just that it was pizza in general. I don't think I realized how. Um, much pizza is a dinner, not lunch thing for people, especially business lunch. I think, you know, a lot of people think of it as, um, too heavy for lunch. And I don't think I realized that I thought like, you know, that one of the reasons why I liked doing the Mexican food was that, um, one of the things I hated at Kenny and Zook's was we were so lunch and not dinner. Like people don't go out for sandwiches for dinner. Um, so we are very much a lunch place and getting dessert dinner business was always very difficult. And so after that, I didn't want to ever be in the position of having a restaurant that was out of balance where it was only lunch or only dinner. Um, and so I thought pizza, one of the nice things about that would be that it would be pretty balanced between lunch and dinner. But I think I was wrong. I think there's a lot of people who just go get a slice, and it's almost more of a snack than a lunch, And um, but, but don't really want to go out for lunch for pizza that much. And so in that sense, we would have been better off in a neighborhood than downtown because downtown – uh, it's really about lunch business first. And, you know, Miramoli has always been a lunch first place. We get, uh, okay dinner business now, or, well, not now, but, you know, uh, uh, prior to COVID, we got okay dinner business, um, and a lot of like margarita sales, a lot of happy hour, but I mean, it was lunch first. And, um, and with, uh, the pizza, there was, it, it really, even though lunch was our busier time, um, it wasn't when people wanted to come in. And so the people who did want to come in, who had heard about us, they were like, ah, but I don't want to go downtown, you know. Right. Um, I found I found that to be a tough location. We went a couple of times. And I think, yeah, and during the day, had I wanted pizza, and I'm, I'm yeah, I agree. I'm a slicer, too person if I'm having it for lunch and I like it but I can't I just couldn't imagine ordering a full pizza uh, right. for lunch well, I mean, we sold slices but I mean you know you'd have a lot of people come in for one slice at lunch right and you know so if you have a if you have a hundred people coming in spending five dollars as opposed to spending ten dollars it makes a huge difference to your bottom line right so but so at, that was but, an issue but at night it was a tough go for you know just 
expecting people to go into that neighborhood at nighttime. Not not the best experience. Well, and I think I think um, yeah, and I mean, Mimaramoli did did totally fine. I mean, you know, on a Friday night it'd be slammed. On a Saturday night it'd be slammed, and we got kind of busy on Friday nights there. I think uh, one of the things that surprised me though is I thought that. Uh, we would be of more interest for uh, the various events down there, for the people who are going to ground control, for the people who are going to um, the different concert venues. Um, but uh, we'd have people going to Roseland shows that were like lined up around us and not coming in except for to use the bathroom. Um, where at least at Mimero, um, you know, as long as it was a crowd older than 30, uh, we'd get absolutely slammed. You know, I mean, obviously the the you know high school crowd is just going to come in and use the bathroom, maybe buy a soda. But um, but at uh, Zava Pizza, I don't know if it was because there wasn't enough branding or um, something else about the place, but people weren't um, coming in, even if they were going to a show. Um, we wouldn't really get any busier when there was a you know a sold out show next door which uh, surprised me as well. So there's a bunch of surprises like that. Um, I'm sure if we would have opened a, um, you know, 800,000 square foot place in a neighborhood, we'd still be open today, you know, even with COVID. Um, But, uh, and it would have saved me a lot of money because I would have spent a lot less on the build out, you know, would have spent a lot less on rent and, you know, and so on. So I could have made a lot of different choices about that. But, um, how, how long did you carry it out be, in hindsight? How long uh, prior to your actual closing do you now wish you had closed? Obviously, I guess the answer is you wish you never would have opened. But. Yeah, yeah, I never wish you never would have opened. Well, I mean, so, so there's a few different things. I mean, um, we're getting kind of far afield from my story, but uh, I'll get back to it in a minute. But, the, uh, but on Zappa Pizza, the, um, so what happened was I wanted to open in spring, um, which is way better to open in spring for that location. Um, you know, all the tourists come in. So the idea was you open in spring, takes a little while for the word to get around for your place, but you have tourists coming in in the summer. So they're going to fill in some of those spots. So you can stay busy enough. And then when the tourists go home, by then people have heard of you and they start coming in at lunch and then you can make it through, um, the slower winter because you've built up name recognition and then you go back into the next spring and it starts to snowball onto itself. But, um, so we started, we closed in, I think August and then, um, it took longer than I expected for the, uh, contract to get going and get permits. Um, and you know, in hindsight, a lot of that was probably the contractor's fault. Um, but I didn't realize it then. And we had three and a half months, I think, of free rent um, going in. So I figured that we'd have to pay a couple months of rent. But, you know, I was hoping we'd get – originally the uh, contractor told me that we could get it done by, like, January or February. Um, and then it just kept on moving back and back. Then we found um, asbestos and rot in the floors. And so that was an extra three months. Plus, I had to argue with our original landlord about who should have to pay for it. And that took like a month just to argue that out. And ultimately, the landlord paid for it, um, as was necessary under the lease. And so then you're pushing out more and more. And then the contractor just was dragging their feet like crazy. It, uh, I mean, there were weeks when there were no subcontractors in there, which is absolutely insane. And so... Um, you know, we ended up not opening until uh, 
September, um, ironically on September 11th, but, um, you know, that was an extra six or seven months of rent. So, so right there, I mean, you're looking at, uh, you know, $70,000, $60,000 worth of rent. And so, you know, assume that everything else being equal, but I had that sixty or $70,000 in my pocket um, come the day that I decide, oh, we're obviously not going to make it. Because what really did it with Zappa Pizza was, you know, we got a little bit of a bump from the Willamette Week article, although probably less bump than I've ever gotten from a, such a positive review before. Um, and it's like, okay, well, we got some bump, you know, maybe we'll move up everything. And then come January and February, it goes down, goes down. Then we get a really positive article or review from um, Oregonian, and there's absolutely no bump. In fact, business went down. And and at that point, I'm like, um, I was hoping business would go up so we could make payroll. I'm going to have to, um, you know, put the next payroll on my credit card, and I might have to put me Meryl Molle's next payroll on my credit card as well. Um, this has got to be the last payroll because I can't do this anymore. I mean, I, I mean, I have no choices here. We're out of money. And so, um, so that's when I made the decision and told the managers and then like, um, day after that, we told all the employees, it's like, this is going to be, you know, the Saturday's last day. Oh, Um, that must have been so hard for you. You put your, you put, that was a long go to, you went down to Mexico to do some research on that. Mexican pizza concept, and you you had your heart in there for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have my heart in it in the same way that I had me Maramola. I mean, it was more of a fun concept, but, you know, I um, didn't expect it to fail so uh, spectacularly. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, you know, basically put everything I owned, uh, you know, into, you know, I might as well just gone to Vegas and put it all on red, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um but yeah, um, so, and, but if, but if come February and one of the other kind of weird things is we closed on February 8th, if we had stayed open to February 15th, uh, we would have been able to get, um, COVID-19, uh, funding right now. So, oh, God. <laughs> so we missed it by one week. Oh, but, um, the, uh, but yeah, but if I'd had that 60 or $70,000 still at that point, um, you know, from the, uh, from basically the contractor screwing us over, um, I would have probably pivoted into something else, you know, something that would for sure, you know, uh, be able to break even like hamburgers or something like that. Right. And so, um, and so that's the other thing. It's like, because it took so long, because we're out of cash, I couldn't even save the restaurant, you know, um, because I had no money left. I would have had to, you know, put another hundred thousand dollars on my house or something. Um, and at that point it's, you know, <laughs> I might be, you know, dead in my sleep, uh, for my wife, uh, strangling me if I had done that. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that's, I mean, there's just, there's a lot that, uh, happened. I mean, at this point, you know, you kind of look back and you go, well, even if I hadn't failed, you know, the way I did, COVID probably would have killed it anyway. Um, you know, maybe not if I'd done everything right from the beginning, but, you know, certainly if I had, like, taken out a loan and tried to, you know, make it another couple months to see if it'd get through summer or something, right. it would have died for sure. Right. So it's it's definitely good that I didn't uh, try to continue past that. But 
So let's talk. Let's, let's talk about COVID and what it's done to me, Miramole. Because you're. Oh uh, well, what I was going to say though, to finish my story from earlier, was just that. Um, so the other thing, so so all that happened was Zappa Pizza. I basically lost four hundred thousand dollars on Zappa Pizza, uh, much of which is you know uh, uh, mortgage on my house now. Um, which means that, you know, I don't have the equity that I had, even if my house was worth as much money as it was, which it's obviously not anymore. Right. But, um, but I had also had an agreement with, um, uh, my managers, Pablo and Caleb, uh, Pablo is Caleb's dad to sell them, uh, Mimera Mole, um, for, uh, um, about a half million dollars, um, which is, uh, actually a pretty good price for what our our revenue there was and um and we had pretty much gone through the motions of doing that and and then covid came along so for the last nine years i've been paying myself twenty thousand dollars a year and somehow i still while never having it in the bank lost a million dollars this year is how i kind of think about it which is just kind of crazy it's like uh (laughs) i mean the only good thing about it is you know i never actually had the million dollars so it's not like i lost it in that sense but it'd be like if you were uh you went to vegas and you're up a million dollars and then you decided to keep betting and suddenly you're uh uh out of money or something yeah and uh that's kind of how it uh feels it's like i was i was right there i was just an inch from being able to uh you know move to mexico work on my book you know do all the things i've been dreaming about doing and now it's all you know falling apart i mean obviously there's people who are way worse off than me and i'm not trying to you know um whine and go woe is me i mean no you you don't sound like you're whining at all i think you're taking it very well and you know the other well i have a little bit more time than most people to to adjust to COVID-19 only because um, I was one of the people back in February who was saying, uh, you know, this is exactly what has happened is what's going to happen. Um, Whereas a lot of people I think were in denial. Um, And so, you know, I was freaking out, um, you know, a month ago, but now I'm kind of resigned to what's going on. So, yeah. And you were also, yeah. So you, if everything had worked okay, worked out okay, you'd be in Mexico with a half million dollars. But you were even close. <laughs> you were even close enough to have salvaged, you know, to if you sold me Marimole, to at least even up the Zappa Pizza problem. And right. that, even well, that, that didn't. Idea. Yeah, jeez, yeah, I can't. Oh, I, I, I'm so sorry, Nick. That's just awful. So. Oh, let's talk about what you have to look forward to now. And I know one of the reasons... The thing is, it it could be, even with that, it could be a lot worse. I mean, at least my wife, you know, has a job she hasn't been laid off from. And uh, once we refinance our house, she'll be able to pay our bills at least. Um, You know, because I'm not going to be able to pay myself for a while. But, um, uh, but man, I just keep thinking about these people. Because I've talked to a lot of restaurant owners, you know, lately. And there's some people who it's like... You know, the wife owns a restaurant and the husband owns a coffee shop. And you just got to be thinking, oh, my Lord. It's like, uh, you know, you guys are super fucked. Yeah, Yeah, we're not hearing it yet. We we know it's coming, but there are, you know, 
sort of when this started happening i started thinking about the bigger they are the harder it's going to be or the more they have there's more at risk so um so you've had you've had some experience with the ppp loans and very frustrating experiences so far i mean i don't know a lot of people that have seen a lot of anything uh i've, I've heard of a a couple of loans being financed or funded, and I've heard just started to hear people getting their stimulus checks. I personally haven't seen a thing, I've barely gotten an email back on anything. So I'm just hoping upon hope. Uh, but I know, like you, it's easy for me—not easy, but I can see that I don't. You know, I don't have it. I don't have employees. I don't have a payroll to hit. So it's not that hard for me compared to a lot of people out there. It's it's rough go. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, some people forget that uh, as um, business owners, we don't have a safety net other than bankruptcy. Really, um, you know, I'm not. Um, you know, I can't get unemployment, and um, and what's what kind of stinks is if you have your 2019 taxes done, you can use those for the stimulus check. But otherwise, you have to go to 2018. And 2018, I show uh, you know too much money um, to get a stimulus check. But 2019, you know, even with my wife's income, we're going to show a negative income because we lost so much money. So uh, I'm not, I can't get the uh, stimulus check either. So I have no clue what that's like right now. Yeah, but it's not. Um, it's, that's not compared to uh, four hundred thousand no, dollars. No, no, no. It's not, it's not a lot, but hopefully, maybe I, you know, it we're reading it. Would help us pay a mortgage, though. <laughs> right, and, and I'm reading that, you know, I don't believe anything, but we're starting to read that some legislation is out there to provide two thousand a month in stimulus payments. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of uh, things out there. It'll be interesting to see what actually comes out. I mean, I, you know, as soon as the details of the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP loans as part of the CARES Act um, came out, I was pretty critical of them because there was too many obvious uh, um, problems with it. I mean, I was getting a lot of um, pushback from other restaurant owners that were like, hey, why don't you just shut up and be grateful? I mean, literally telling me to shut up and be grateful that they're giving us something. I'm like, uh, but... You know, the way I explained it to someone else today was, uh, you know, I understand that they want to see that the glass is half full, but I'm trying to show them there's actually poison in that half a glass. Yeah. So, and and that's, uh, that's a bit where it was. I mean, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, first of all, in the details, um, you know, it was obvious that chains were going to be first in line. And I was trying to explain this to a lot of friends. It's like, Hey, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. They, the first people they will give these loans to are all these chains with big accounts and lots of money and lots of capital. I mean, because they're easy investments. They know that they can pay this back. So, and they, they want it back. And they loans. want it back too. That's a better bet for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, those were, those were easy loans. You knew that places like, uh, uh, Ruth's Chris and um, Shake Shack and all those places would have no problem getting their loans. And places like McDonald's and Burger King are um, eligible. I don't know if they applied, but they're eligible for the loans too. You know, which is crazy that these companies that can you know uh, raise money through Wall Street uh, would would be in the same line as people who basically have no choice but to um, you know get high interest loans, credit cards, that sort of thing to uh, 
keep stay alive. But um, so there was that problem with it. And then on top of that, um, the way they based it was they based it on payroll entirely. Um, it wasn't based on losses or damages. So um, all you have to all you had to do, and this was obvious in the early details, was say that you were um, concerned that COVID nineteen um, would hurt your business, that uh, made your business uncertain in the future. It's like, well, who the hell isn't? I mean, even Amazon, which is going gangbusters right now, is probably thinking, well, with you know future twenty percent employment and a drop in GDP, GDP, who knows what our Christmas is going to be like? They're uncertain about their future, so they need a loan, which is you know nuts. And so, um, you know, and then and then the amount of the loan was based entirely on payroll. So a company that say um, only saw a drop in of revenue of 10% or maybe didn't even see a drop in revenue, um, but has a hundred thousand, uh, dollar payroll per month could get a, um, $250,000 loan. Meanwhile, a company with a hundred thousand dollar payroll a month that's seen an 80% drop in their, uh, revenue, um, would also be eligible for a $250,000 loan. And both of those, because of the way it's based on whether you, uh, uh, use it for your payroll or not would be eligible for the same forgiveness. So if you use most of it on your um, for your payroll, you're allowed to use some of it on rent and utilities and things like that. You can the government will forgive the loan. But the problem with that is that if a company is uh, already gaining its revenue, wouldn't have to lay anybody off. They have their revenue. They're still making money uh, open during COVID. All that money will be profit for them. It's just straight profit into their pocket. It just goes right into their savings account, right into dividends or whatever. Um, whereas for someone like me who's lost 80% of my business, even with that forgiveness, it's not going to make me whole. I'm still going to be losing money. So that's the – I mean it was – it had just multiple problems from the very beginning. Um, what I had said originally and I stick by today is that they should have either uh, made it based on revenue loss. You know, it's like, okay, compare your February 2019 to your February 2020 revenues. Um, how much you pretty much you're down. You can use a multiple of that for uh, your loan amount and how much is going to be forgiven. Um, you know, and base it on that instead or – they could have just forced uh, insurance companies to um, pay us based on uh, business loss, right? I mean, insurance companies are used to doing this. They do it in natural disasters all the time. If there's a flood, a hurricane, um, earthquake, whatever, they are very experienced at figuring this stuff out. And then, you know, the insurance companies would have been you know, in danger of going bankrupt because of having to do this for an entire country, but then you bail out the insurance companies. Either way would have been so much better than what they did um, and no more complicated. Um, it just pisses me off. And meanwhile, um, you know, this PPP loan is only going to be a two-month thing, so we're going to be in this exact same position come July. Right. So, um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's where we are. Are you able to think about what it might look like when restaurants start opening up? I mean, Eater just had an article that it, there certainly isn't going to be any grand opening situation going on. It's going to be very slow. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've made the same prediction that I was making back in uh, early March, which is that um, – well, actually, I think mid-March. I think once once I could see um, where things were going as far as uh, what kind of mitigation strategies would people be taking with social distancing and that, um, it seemed to me that uh, the most you could really hope for with most places would be something like 50% revenue. Um you know, there's going to be places that are exceptions. Places with drive-throughs are still doing lots of business. I talked to someone who uh, was doing twelve thousand dollars a day through their drive-through, which is, you know, uh, more than uh, me Maramoli's ever made in a day, except for on Cinco de Mayo. So, um, you know, there's there's places. You know, I know that um, uh, Dutch Brothers, you know, has been killing it with their little coffee stands that are all, you know, drive through, um, and places that are set up, you know, like, a um, that we're always to go or, you know, these ghost kitchen places, um, all those places are set up for the future. They're doing well now and so on. Um, the more you're using a dining room or the more a dining room matters, uh, the more you're going to be hurt. So Mimara Mole is a place that's uh, fast casual, um, and kind of in between, a uh, uh, fast food and a um, and uh, you know mid scale dining you know uh, sit down dining restaurant is is going to be a little better off but um, but the places like uh, you know Little Caesars or whatever or Chipotle they're going to kill uh, going forward and then the places that are going to be the worst off are going to be the places um, that you know, kind of have dominated Portland's dining scene for the longest time, which are these, uh, you know, uh, mid-sized to small um, chef-centered restaurants where, you know, a lot of the restaurants in Portland, you know, it's shoulder-to-shoulder uh, shoulder in the dining room. Right. And and it's all about the experience, and, you know, it's not, it's not cheap, but it's not really expensive. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you can do, like, just a sushi bar and you can charge $150 a person, you know, you might be able to come out. You mean, I don't, you know, you know, some of these more exclusive places in big cities, you know, they can probably raise their prices however much they want. And the rich people who uh, frequent those aren't going to be hurt much by it because they've got plenty of disposable income. But, um, you know, a lot of these places in Portland, you know, Portland's not a wealthy town. Um, it's, you know, it's not near as wealthy as even Seattle. So, um, you know, people's disposable incomes can be a lot lower when you've got uh, twenty plus um, uh, unemployment. Yeah. yeah, and so um, those places that have been the heart and soul of uh, Portland's dining scene for at least the last twenty years are going to be the places most hurt. And so that, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be. Um, Heartbaking. Uh, and it's, for those and it's, who really care about it. It's not just revenue solely. It's logistics too on how that's going to work. If you have state or federal whatever regulations or even city on on separation between diners or and or diners and staff, uh, that's going to make things very difficult because you can only yeah. you're only going to be able to I mean, put. From, uh, I mean that stuff will ultimately all work itself out in the sense of like you know there'll be headaches but all of us as restaurant all of us as restaurateurs will deal with them you know in the same way we deal with you know OLCC regulations or health department regulations or new um 
you know, issues with a point of sale system or whatever, you know, those are all those day-to-day things that we work out. But ultimately what it means is seeing um, our revenues drop by 50%. And, you know, people don't always understand how much volume matters in a restaurant um, and why, for example, so many restaurants in Portland don't have uh, reservations or why, you know, you're shoulder to shoulder with, uh, you know, tables and that sort of thing. It's, it's because volume matters so much. These places that, um, you know, and there's, and there's been tons of them in Portland's history where they're like slammed from the minute they open to the minute they close. Those type of places can practically print money. You, you don't have to, um, pay good attention to your, to your, uh, cost of goods sold or, you know, your labor costs and stuff because um, you get to a certain point in a restaurant where your volume just kind of overtakes everything and each new dollar is all profit. Um, whereas the average restaurant, you know, um, might be just making, you know, 5% on gross. So they might be, you know, the, the owner might be at the end of the day taking home, you know, less than they would if they went and got, you know, your average job doing, you know, sales at a phone store or something, you know, um, and then, and then places like there were months, for example, in Kenny and Zooks where, um, uh, you know, in the slow months where we might lose, you know, $40,000 in a month just because, um, you get below a certain level in volume where, um, it's just, you know, it's just like burning money. So, um, and it's because you've got such high costs. I mean, not only is startup cost for a restaurant high, but you've got all these other costs. I mean, you've got big spaces, so you've got rent. You've got, um, you know, lots of equipment using lots of utilities. You're using lots of water. So all your, those costs are high. Um, you know, uh, especially, uh, sit down restaurants have lots of high labor, um, especially in, in a place like Oregon where there's no, um, uh, credit for, uh, tip credit, you know, you have to play minimum wage plus tips. So, um, you know, if you've got, you, um, six servers and eight, you know, uh, people in the back of the house or something, you're paying them no matter if it's busy or slow, you can maybe cut some people here and there, but no matter what, you've pretty much got these costs. And so, um, uh, until you reach a certain amount of volume, where you're uh, breaking even and you're starting to fill up, um, you really can lose a lot of money. And then once you get to a point where um, it doesn't matter how much busier you get, you're not adding any more costs to you because, you know, the lights are on either way, the uh, gas is on either way, you're paying your rent, um, you can only have so many uh, people in the kitchen at a time, and so on, then other than uh, what's called your cost of goods sold, you know, you're basically your food costs, everything else stays the same and everything above that food cost, which is usually around 70% is, um, is just money. It's just, so volume matters a ton. And I don't know any um, restaurants that are built on the idea of, of breaking even at 50% revenue. I mean, you know, usually you're break even somewhere closer to like, you know, uh, 70% of your normal or 80% of your normal, not, right. you know, 50% of your normal. So it's going to take a lot of creativity to figure out how to even break even. 
with uh, 50% revenue going forward, especially for these mid-scale places. I mean, you know, maybe I can renegotiate my lease, um, figure out how to use less electricity, you know, negotiate with, uh, you know, um, our insurance company and so on, and mostly do takeout and delivery. But, you know, what about these fine dining places? I mean, it, does anybody want to really get takeout from fine dining every night? I mean, yeah, it was well, about the experience of being in a restaurant and having stuff presented to you nicely and having, you know, a server come over to you dressed smartly and suggest a wine. Right. Um, oh, no, there's not. It's not the same thing, getting the exact same food that's delicious and taking it home. It's that that right. is not, you know, what I think what gave a lot of the value of whatever you're spending at a nice restaurant was just getting out and taking it home is not the same thing. It's just not. So maybe for some people it is. I'm sure it is for some, but I think the experience and if it was is just out. a matter of uh, if it was just a matter of like regulations saying, okay, well, you can only be half as busy as you are now. Um, it would be one thing. Maybe you can raise the prices enough for for a lot of these places to make it. But you have to keep in mind that a lot of people are going to be out of work, and so their you know their ability to pay higher prices is going to go uh, way down. So it's it's a double edged sword. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I think there'll just be a lot. There'll be a lot of strategies. Um, You know, uh, I think you'll see a lot smaller menus, you know, a lot fewer offerings so that there's not as much uh, work to do on uh, preparing the food for the menu. Um, You know, I think you'll see a lot fewer uh, uh, front of the house employees. You're just going to have to wait a little bit longer to get your order taken. Um, I think you might see hours narrowed a decent amount. No more of the uh, open between, you know, two and and six sort of thing. You know, it'll be a lot more like Europe, really, where, you know, the um, wages are higher and um, and the costs for food and stuff are often a lot higher. So, you know, you know, you know how that is where you travel a lot. You know, if you're in uh, a lot of countries, um, you know, uh, Spain, Italy, France, etc. You know, they might only be open two hours for lunch and three hours for dinner, and that's it. And every day they're full because they take reservations and they just know how to plan. And you're just going to have to um, reserve a spot way ahead. I think you'll see a lot of mid-scale places probably having to move to a model like that so that they can really plan and, and budget uh, really tightly. Um, going forward i wonder if you're going to see a lot more ticketed experiences too so that the so restaurants you know that's a double-edged sword i realize because ticketed experiences can get a little expensive but but that way a restaurant can exactly can know and no shows aren't going to hurt them the same way they do so i don't know i i think uh i think because no shows will hurt you'll see a lot of things that um you know restaurants have been uh hesitant to do such as well if you don't show up for your reservation you're getting charged half the price or right. uh, you know or something like that i think you'll just see that as part of uh of doing business going forward and um you know customers uh might complain about it a little bit but you know i think um under the circumstances uh, they'll end up accepting it. it will just be habit going forward well they'll have to once you once many do it it becomes the norm and someone doesn't stand out as being 
a difficult restaurant or a soup Nazi by doing something like that. So, right. And, uh, and normally, what happens is, you know, it's just like gas prices. I mean, um, you know, uh, the reason why when you know oil prices go down you know, everybody ends up uh, charging you less is because one person does it and then everybody has to compete. Well, going forward, you know, nobody's going to be able to <laughs> get away with uh, having people just no show for um, reservations. And so there won't be that ability to, uh, you know, uh, compete with the other restaurant by not having um, those fees or something. Everybody will need them. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, you know, another thing about this, of course, is that there'll just be less restaurants. I mean, no matter what we do, um, you know, we're going to have to accept in our industry, you know, hotels will be the same way. But there's just going to be fewer of us around a year from now. Yeah. Um, the market is not going to be able to support the number. Um, my estimate since probably mid-March has been that we'll see at least 25% of restaurants close permanently. And I think a lot of that is um, is dependent on you know how much support you get from the government, how quickly we get uh, um, you know the various uh, schemes to open up the the um, economy a little bit. Um, you know the, the ability to do them like the tracing and the tracking and the um, uh, vaccine or treatments or whatever. You know certainly that stuff matters, but. We're not going to see a big difference for at least a year or two. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think this this sounds blasphemous to say, but, you know, it it's not a secret that for many years, a lot of people in the industry, people who own restaurants and others who said there are just a lot, there's, there are too many restaurants for the population in Portland. So maybe it's going to, you know, I, I don't think as a diner, 25% fewer restaurants it sucks on a personal level for every restaurant owner, every chef, every employee at those restaurants. That sucks. But as a diner, we're still going to have, if you if you have enough income to go out, we're still going to have enough choices in Portland to not be at a loss. Choices will be fine. The, uh, I think the thing that, you know, on a, if you're an economist looking at it from like, you know, uh, you know, five miles up or whatever, um, you know, long term, it looks like a good thing. But I think as a as a food geek or a food nerd, you know, in Portland, um, the big problem is uh, what restaurants disappear uh, isn't based on merit of their cooking. Right. right? It's it's based on um, a bunch of business factors that may have nothing to do with quality of food or experience. So you may see a lot of your favorite restaurants um, that were favorites because uh, they put um, quality ahead of profit um, that end up disappearing, you know, and, and you might see a lot more, um, you know, I mean, Portland's been kind of uh, protected in the, from corporate chains for a long time. It wasn't uh, considered a uh, big market. So a lot of them didn't move in here. There's a lot of, um, uh, preventative measures as far as zoning and stuff that kept them from moving in. Um, but I mean, I think you'll see that, uh, a lot of the, uh, chains that are set up for the, uh, for the new restaurant economy, um, might end up taking a lot of that market share from, you know, these, uh, cool hip 
local restaurants that were doing interesting food. Um, and I mean, we're already seeing some of that. I mean, you have um, Shake Shack moving into Portland even during this uh, right. uh, COVID-19. So, I mean, you know, that's that's the bad part is that, um, you know, it, it is true that, uh, that there's been a lot of restaurants for the number of people and a lot of them weren't really making that much money because there was so much competition. And, you know, and 10 years ago, Zappa Pizza might have survived just by the fact that uh, it would have stood out more and so on. But, um, but the problem is that when those 25% or more restaurants close, a lot of them are going to be the very best restaurants. Right. Um, and so that's the sad part. That is very sad. So, um, one, we, we've been on longer than I wanted to keep you on because I know you have, uh, this is your day off. I didn't want this to take you, I didn't want to take you away from your day off too long. And we generally have a, an hour, 45 minute to an hour long podcast. They've been shorter lately. But before we go, how is, how are prospects for me, Marimole? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think probably going forward, the most likely thing, is that um, I try to get it into a place where it's sustainable, and then I kind of just uh, leave it to my employees to uh, run and hopefully just uh, break even, and they can pay themselves. And you know, I go off and get a job uh, where I can you know help my wife pay our mortgage, and maybe if I have some extra money, uh, throw it in Mole's way to make sure it doesn't go out of business. Um, I think that's probably the most likely thing going forward. Well, I think you um, might have a you could have a career consulting with restaurants because just listening to you the last uh, for the last few minutes, you can hear that you have a great business mind, despite the fact that you just lost four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I had I had actually consulted on restaurants before and uh, helped them. There was one in Dallas that uh, ended up being restaurant of the year that I consulted on. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if anybody's going to have that sort of disposable income going forward uh, to be able to uh, spend on the likes of me. But um, well, you never you never know. Well, here's the, computer here's the thing I've learned, and yes, you can do that, and that's a good industry, but here's the thing I've learned, is that you can't, yes, I think you've done some interesting and very cogent speculation as to what may or may not happen, but it's very, when times are tough, it's much easier to see the disaster scenario than it is to see the great things that could happen that are serendipitous that you don't know might be coming down the pike. So um, right now it's a tough time because, yes, we're hopeful that some of those things will be in places for business, the place for businesses to survive and then get out of it. But um, one never knows what's happening down the road that could be positive. Well, I, think, too. I, think we will, I think we will get through it. I mean, even if, um, even if the worst case scenario, which is that uh, – uh, the coronavirus becomes endemic. We never get a, uh, a vaccine for it. And we just kind of have to learn to social distance for the rest of our lives or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, worst case scenario like that. I mean, we'll change our, how our economy is, um, organized, but I don't know that, uh, you know, but we'll still come through it. I think it'll just, it just, it's a huge disruption though. You know, you've, uh, you know, you're, 
you know, I look at it as probably a year or two um, of of a depressed hospitality um, economy with, you know, maybe five years plus to get back to where uh, we were pre-COVID. But I mean, um, you know, even in the worst case scenario, it's, it's a reordering of how things are done, but things will still be done. It's just that disruption, you know, just like anything, um, you know, whether it's, it's, uh, you know, the invention of the digital camera, you know, all those people who ended up, you know, losing their asses at Kodak or whatever. I mean, that hurt a lot. Eventually, uh, you know, on the grander scale, we come through it. But there's a lot of people who suffer in the process. And I think that's what we're dealing with here is, uh, you know, ultimately um, we'll get through this. But there's going to be a lot of people who... um, you know, are going to be losing their jobs and be suffering in the process. Right. And so that's what we need to worry about. And the, and the prospects aren't there. And you make a good point. I mean, look at the, um, and this is no consolation, but look at the music industry. I mean, that was a big shakeup. My old industry advertising changed drastically. You know, everybody's a graphic designer now and everybody's a copywriter. Right. So um, it's happened to a lot of industries. It's just this one is a wonderful, you know, uh, industry that consumers enjoy so much, and it's one of the joys of life. So well, there's just so many at, at once too. It's it's just such a gigantic shock to the entire economy because it's you know it's hotels, it's airlines, it's you know oil, it's restaurants. You know, yeah. it, it's just so much is hammered all at once that um, you know it's going to be horrific. Um, but I, I do believe we'll get through it. It's just going to take, um, you know, a lot of effort of, uh, of changing how we think about, um, you know, uh, what we do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I think we're going to see some forced policies that perhaps people were fighting for a long time, but we'll see. But so Nick, I really appreciate your, uh, taking the time. You've always been, uh, extremely open, more so than anybody, I think, that I know. Extremely open about uh, details about what you're doing and very humble. And uh, I think you're one of the nicest guys out there. And anybody in the industry, uh, especially in Portland, respects you. And, um, God, we hope me and Marimola, we'd much rather see you in the restaurant business than a computer programmer. There are a lot of those out there. So, well, thank you. So let's hope you make it, and um, you know I'll hope to meet up with you soon for a bite to eat somewhere. We haven't done that in a while. Yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk through our masks, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody's got it. So anyway, thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. So uh, just to be, if anybody's got gotten through the whole podcast, and we hope they have. So your restaurant is located where? Uh, 32 Northwest 5th that's uh, Northwest 5th and Cooch in Chinatown but you can uh, go to our website mmmtacospdx.com and uh, order from there if you'd like right and I will I will endorse that fully because your food is great and uh, it's uh, as was Zappa Pizza that was a you know that was much like my post corner pizza Greek pizza with Mexican flavors um, it was sad to see that not work. But me, Miramole, just so people know, you have done a lot of research in Mexico. You have some great friends in Mexico in the industry. And so you didn't just open up and say, let's do this. And you've got 
you've got some delicious guisados and the food at Mi Miramole is, is fantastic. Mole. Mi Miramole. So I'm terrible at pronouncing things. So um, I didn't even have, I had the Frank Zappa pronunciation of Zappa, Zappa Pizza, though. So, yeah, so many people were saying Zappa Pizza that I started saying Zappa Pizza. It was pissing me off. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny when you, it's when, when I, you know, my children are young. I loved when they mispronounced things because it meant they were reading. And not hearing it on TV. So, oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to give myself credit for that. But for whatever reason, I was a big Frank Zappa fan. So uh, I know there was only one P in Zappa. But uh, still, that's what I've said his name a lot over the years. So anyway, thanks very much. And we will see you soon. And are you, you're, doing, you're obviously doing takeout now. Yep services going all that sort of thing do you have your own uh, delivery service going or are you using others because that's an issue uh, now right others for now um we may in the future uh try to do our own delivery we do delivery for things like we do these heat and serve meals uh you know like enchiladas and tamales um where we will deliver if you uh, order over uh fifty dollars worth and then we're also doing these uh regional um meals once a week it's like a sunday dinner sort of thing where you can get them for like two four or six people and um each week it changes and then going forward we haven't um uh, announced this yet and i don't know when this podcast will go so we might have announced it by the time the podcast goes on but uh, we're planning on doing these uh tuesday um these taco tuesday kits too where it's kind of like the uh OG Tex-Mex uh, crispy tacos where we'll give you, uh, you know, your um, seasoned ground beef, your uh, yellow cheese, lettuce, onions, tomatoes, sour cream, and then house-made crispy corn shells where you can kind of build your own taco dinner night too. So I've got a bunch of stuff going. Very nice. We need one of those. You remember the old bank tubes where you went to the – Drive-in uh, slot. Oh, the pneumatic tubes. Yeah, I, mean, I need pneumatic tubes to to <laughs> deliver out to Manzanita because. Uh, well, you know, like uh, Elon Musk, I think wants to create pneumatic tubes instead of uh, subway systems, where you just like suck people in a big tube like all the way down California. So. <laughs> that, <laughs> Maybe we can get one of those from Portland to Cannon Beach or something. Yeah, I don't think Cannon Beach wants that. So um, <laughs> probably not. Yeah. Inside them. Yeah. And, yeah, that's true. Seaside. But at any rate, we have actually a couple of good options out here for takeout. I obviously get jealous looking and I can't go in. I'm going to go. I'm going to jump in this week for a little prescription run, but and sneak something. And I know I will. But um, uh, it's really frowned upon out here, by the way, really frowned upon. Uh, I've noticed, uh, yeah, you guys got, like, police blocking the uh, the beaches and stuff out there. Yeah, and we and I have militant neighbors, too. So um, <laughs> We've got those here, too. Yeah, I, I made a bit, I made a big mistake. People for having a, um, a backyard party that they're murderers, so. Yeah, no, I, I actually, and this neighbor, we've made our peace, but a few things have happened with my neighbors. One was really kind of, really? You're going to do that? But the my really nice neighbor across the street 
So in Manzanita, they weren't allowing second homeowners to come out here. And so the, by, by allowing, they just originally said you can't come. And then someone must have, just like they did with Trump, you know, called attention to the mayor. You can't tell people not to do it. That's not, you, you got no law. So at any rate, so I, I go into Portland at the end of March because my prescriptions were going to take three weeks to get out here. So I thought, okay. I got cabin fever. I'll just go to the drive-thru at Walgreens. And then while I was there, I thought, okay, let me check out Zupan's because I'd like to go to Zupan's. And there was nobody there at 7 o'clock. It was great. I could go in and do my shopping, and I posted onto Instagram. And my neighbor wrote me a scathing text the next morning, like, I can't even come to my house, and you are jumping into Portland, you know, lollygagging over to Zupans. So anyway, all, you know, things are very good. That's right. Suck it, bitches. Yeah, no, well, no, he's a, he's a really nice guy, but it's interesting. That's what this, this is doing to people. They're getting oh, a know. little ornery. And I understood why I would have been kind of pissed off, too. And I knew when I posted to Instagram, I thought, uh-oh, I'm going to hear about this from somebody. <laughs> so anyway, well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to get that little story out. But my neighbor and I are friends. And as a matter of fact, I encouraged him, if you've been – in Portland for a month. You want I friends until he listens to us. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think he listens. But but <laughs> no, he's fine. But I encourage them to come out because if you've been if you've been isolated for 14 days in Portland, that's really not a lot. And I'm sure I can get people to call me on this, but it's not. You're isolating enough to come out and use your home and not go anywhere out here. You well, know? it's it's ridiculous anyway. I mean. Um, you know, I mean, for one thing, Oregon is already past the peak, right? I mean, we can, um, our, our mitigation has worked and, you know, it would be reasonable to let up a little bit on that mitigation and see if, you know, we can keep, um, uh, things going down as far as new cases and so on. Right. But I mean, um, you also have the problem of, uh, it's a bit like a pressure cooker, you know, if you keep people in their houses and it's nice weather. It's like you keep, you know, all this pressure on them. You have to stay home. You have to stay home. You can't do anything. You can't do anything. Instead of giving them a safe release valve and, you know, going to the beach is relatively safe. As long as you're not sharing public bathrooms or sharing public tables. Yeah. But but Nick, that's the problem is when, before they told people not to come, the parking lots at the parks were packed, which meant that people were in the bathrooms. I would, I would do stuff like, uh, you know, limit so that you can only have every other space be used. Or I mean, there's a bunch of things they could do. But, I mean, once you're on the beach, I mean, it's a freaking beach. It's just like the same thing with the parks. I mean, if you're walking through the park or, you know, I see all these people like, go, why do you want to kill your neighbor? Because, you know, a family of four goes has a picnic at the beach or you know, at the park. It's like... Dude, it's a family. They're isolated together. You know, they're going to be in each other's space anyway using the same bathroom. It does not matter if they go and sit on grass together and have a snack. Um, And it's the same thing with the beach. I mean, you know, Washington has made it so that you can't go fishing. It's like, it's it's insane. It's absolutely insane. That sounds pretty crazy, but I will never... Ever agree with you that everybody should be able to come to the beach? I'm going to tell everybody that the virus 
spreads in sand. It's all over the beach. Don't come out. No, I, I really like yeah, it. Yeah, that's because it's your backyard and it's like... Exactly. Uh, I love it with nobody here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, but but yes, I do. But then there's the other thing that they I've read and I don't know. I should come out to your house and we'll set up a roadside uh, fish and chip stand and people can just come and we'll just put the fish and chips in their... Uh, in their window or something. There's there is a really good one in the Halem that's open that they've decided they've never been open at this time of year. Fish and chips food cart they're open so. Oh nice. Yeah that's been that's been nice and believe me if you want to come and serve tacos from outside of my house and my commission is a few tacos <laughs> you're in baby do it okay. soon. All right thank you so much Nick I appreciate it. Yep. All right have a good night bye. bye. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right